I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Hosea chapters 1 through 7. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Let's begin with an introduction to the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom from the day of King Jeroboam II, that was 793 to 753 B.C., down through the fall to the Assyrians in 721 B.C., which is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. Verse 1 shows us that he prophesied down to Hezekiah's reign from 715 to 686 B.C. He was king of the southern kingdom. The metaphorical content of this prophecy revolves around Hosea's dysfunctional family. He was commanded by God to choose a wife from among prostitutes. Yes, I said prostitutes. And subsequently, his wife did not remain faithful to him after their marriage. This was to serve as an object lesson of Israel's shortcoming in their faithfulness to God. Israel's love for false gods and idols through their history is many times characterized as harlotry by the Old Testament prophets. The names of Hosea's children were also significant with regard to the actions of Israel toward God. Hosea had a tough life. Besides the pressures of giving unpopular prophecies to his nation, he also had a challenging home life. Incidentally, as the most influential among the tribes comprising the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim is often mentioned in Hosea's prophecy as characterizing all of Israel. The other prophets of the Old Testament often do the same thing. So let's begin with chapter 1, and let's take a look at Hosea's wife and those kids. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel." But I will utterly take them away, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Amai, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God." Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, 
and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Well, God told Hosea to take an unfaithful wife, and he did so. Her name was Gomer. All of the children that she bore were given names with prophetic meanings, bad prophetic meanings. Son number one in verse four, Jezreel, and that's because for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. One might incorrectly conclude that this refers to the extermination of Ahab's dynasty along with Jezebel and the slaying of Judah's wicked king Ahaziah at the same time in Second Kings chapter 9, beginning with verse 14 down through chapter 10, verse 17. However, Jehu is commended by God himself in Second Kings chapter 10, verse 30 for this very act. Therefore, we must conclude that Jehu, who turns out to be a wicked king as well, must have committed subsequent atrocities against the city of Jezreel. And then daughter number one, verse 6, Loruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. That's what that means. And then son number two, in verse number nine, Lo am I, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God, is the meaning of that name. Those names all look toward the fall of Israel to the Assyrians in 721 B.C., found in Second Kings chapter 17. However, verse 10 looks forward to a time when Israel and Judah would again be reunited and they would once again appoint their own leader. Now, while it's true that they were reunited in their land when they returned in the latter part of the 6th century B.C. after the exile, they were still under the authority of other nations at the time, and they did not choose their own leaders, nor were they permitted to have a king. After the fall of Israel, Judah also, except Jerusalem, they fell, and finally Jerusalem itself was completely overthrown in 586 B.C. That's recorded in Second Kings chapters 24 and 25. That was after 20 years of puppet kings, by the way. And Israel, as a self-governing nation, they didn't exist again until May 14, 1948, when Israel once again was constituted as an independent nation. Verses 6 and 7 are particularly significant here in Hosea's prophecy concerning the fall of Israel to the Assyrians, but not Jerusalem at that time. Notice the prophecy of Israel's fall in verse 6 when it says, I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. In contrast, notice the survival of Judah, at least with regard to the Assyrians. In verse 7, it says, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. This celebrated miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem is found in Second Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 13, down to chapter 19, verse 37, also, it's recorded in Second Chronicles 32, 9-22, and Isaiah, the whole chapters of 36 and 37. Then we have the object lesson applied in Hosea chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. 
For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband." and no longer call me my master, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth, to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me, in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy." I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Chapter 2 is based on the parallel between God's relation to Israel and Hosea's relationship to his wife Gomer. Hosea's family was a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. They went after other gods just as an unfaithful wife goes after other men. That's the picture of the first 13 verses of chapter 2. Hosea's prophecy makes use of the following names in verse 1 to symbolically describe Israel's relationship to God. Amai means my people, a name given by Jehovah to the people of Israel. And Ruhamah means having obtained mercy. That's a symbolical name given to the daughter of Hosea. In verse 7, we get the sense of the analogy given here. Just as a prostitute pursues her lovers, so Israel seeks after false gods. However, God blocks her way to success, and she decides to return back to her husband, that being God. In verse 8, we see that God withheld the basic staples from Israel in their pursuit of false gods. As a matter of fact, Israel's futile attempt at success without God is seen down through verse 13. 
However, beginning with verse 14, we see the restoration of the unfaithful wife, meaning Israel. We get a couple more symbolic names in verse 16. Ishai means my husband, and Baalai means my lord. While we see a partial fulfillment in the return from the exile in 535 B.C., which is recorded in Ezra chapter 1, that's not the complete fulfillment. There's coming a day when they will turn back toward their God, and God will show them favor and complete self-rule. That's the yet future millennium, also characterized in this passage as a period when even predatory animals will be tamed. We see that in verse 18. And that's also described in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. In chapter 3, we see that Hosea takes back his harlot wife, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and one-half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days." It would appear that Gomer, Hosea's wife, was back to her old trade, if she ever actually left it. God tells Hosea to buy her back, which he does with the silver and barley of verse 2. She's to give up her relationships with these other men. The object lesson here is this. Just as Hosea redeemed his wife, God will redeem Israel. The fulfillment of this is in the millennium to come. Note the reference to David, their king, in verse 5, making it clearly messianic in fulfillment. So just as they would experience defeat and subjection in verse 4, they would once again come to their land and have their king David ruling over them in verse 5 in the yet future kingdom age, being the millennium. Verse 5 emphasizes David, their king. Without that phrase, one might assign the fulfillment of these verses to the return of the exiles in 535 B.C. However, with David added to the prophetic mix here, this is definitely not to be fulfilled until the millennium to come. Now, as an interesting um, aside here, it's not really an aside, actually, it's part of the text. You see that it actually says David their king in Hosea 3.5. And so I've written an article entitled King David's Role in the Millennium. It goes along with this reading today. Also, there are references in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And um, so take a look at that, and you'll be interested to see that during the millennium, uh, we'll be seeing the Messiah and King David. And that brings us to Hosea chapter 4, Israel's sin of spiritual adultery, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beast of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priest for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslaved the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. And they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not go up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Well, in this chapter, the sin of Israel's embracing false gods is once again the theme. Verse 1 sets the tone for the chapter when it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Again, let me remind you, from their first king, Jeroboam, they never served God, not ever. The northern kingdom never, ever, ever served God. He immediately erected two calves, we're talking about Jeroboam here, for worship, and that became their form of basic worship in the northern kingdom. When they wandered away from the base religion all the way over to the Baal worship and worship of Moloch and others, they would from time to time come back to their basic worship, but that would not be to Jehovah. That would be the two calves. They were unfaithful to the one true God from the very beginning. Even their two calf priests are given dishonorable mention here in verses 4 through 11. Their culpability is identified in this passage. We see in verses 12 through 14 that the people of Israel were worshiping and looking for leadership from false gods rather than from their own true one God. Judah is mentioned in verse 15. They had their problems of going after other gods as well, but their base religion was the worship of the one true God. When they went back to basics, that's where they went, back to Jehovah. The prophets often identify the deviation from serving Jehovah. They call it spiritual harlotry. Ephraim is mentioned in verse 17 as the most influential of the tribes comprising the northern kingdom. And then we have uh, more about the the fact that Israel had become wicked in chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priest, take heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah, and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. 
For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water." Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face, and their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Uh, this chapter is devoted to Hosea's prophecy against the sin of the northern kingdom known as Israel. As we mentioned earlier, sometimes the northern kingdom is referred to as Ephraim. That's one of the northern tribes. The spiritual leadership of the northern kingdom being the two calf priests, they're clearly implicated in verse 1. And there's the spiritual harlotry there in chapter 5, verse 3, when it says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit a harlotry. Israel is defiled. The resulting consequences are seen in verses 4 through 9. The civil leadership of Israel is indicted in verse 10. They'll be chastised, it says, till they acknowledge their offense then they will seek my face, verse 15. They didn't acknowledge their sins, and by the way, they fell to the Assyrians in 721 B.C. Verse 5 says, Judah also stumbles with them, Jerusalem itself within Judah. They didn't actually fall until 586 B.C., and that was to the Babylonians, not the Assyrians. But the rest of the land of Judah, southern kingdom, they did fall prey to the Assyrians along with the inhabitants of the northern kingdom. What about repentance? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Now, verses 1 through 3 have been the center of significant prophetic discussion for those who insist upon setting a timetable for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The controversial words are found in verse 2. Here's what verse 2 says again. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. What does that mean? Well, many have coupled Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, the one I just quoted, with 2 Peter chapter 3, 8. Here's what that verse says in 2 Peter 3, 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So they contend that because of the precedent of standardizing God's time in 2 Peter 3, 8, that the two days in verse 2 really mean 2,000 years. Therefore, it's believed by some that the second coming of Jesus Christ will take place after 2,000 years from whatever the beginning point is in verse 2. Yeah, but uh, here's our first big obstacle with this theory. If you marry Hosea 6-2 with 2 Peter 3-8, and by the way, I don't, well, then you have a doctrine that says Israel will be revived after two days, but from when? I mean, when do you start counting that two days? The fall of Israel in 721 B.C., or the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., or or perhaps the countdown should start at the birth of Jesus, or perhaps his death. Maybe the countdown should start at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Theories abound, each selecting one of the events that I just mentioned as the starting point for the countdown of verse 2. Now, one more variable is to be considered here. What kind of years are we talking about, actual or prophetic years? An actual solar year is 365.2522 days long, while prophecy often uses 360-day years for prophetic purposes. With 360-day years, 1,000 years would actually be 986 solar years. One theory with which I'm familiar counts from the crucifixion of Jesus, which they calculate to be 33 A.D., Add to that date 1,972 years, that would be 986 years, solar years, times 2, and you come out to the year 2005. And by the way, that just happens to be the exact year in which I first wrote this paragraph for the very first time. In addition to the basic assumption that Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 and 2 Peter 3 8 are married to each other, there's another big problem here with this theory, and that's the calendar itself. Our years today are rendered, theoretically, from the birth of Jesus as calculated by a Catholic monk who lived in the 6th century A.D. His name was Dionysius Exegus. In preparing this for the Roman Catholic Church, Dionysius overlooked two significant pieces of data in his calculations. His first oversight was that Herod was still living when Jesus was born. That's a biblical fact in Matthew chapter 2. That's the reason why the reference books and Bibles generally render the birth of Jesus at 4 B.C. Look at them. You'll see that. 4 B.C. for the birth of Jesus. Jesus born four years before the birth of Christ. That's the latest Herod, by the way, could have died according to the calendar created by Dionysius. However, there was another oversight. That oversight was year zero. In his calculations, Dionysius counted only a single year between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., and you know, in reality, there are two years between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., but Dionysius just did one. That being the case, it is accepted by nearly all Bible scholars that Jesus could not have been crucified later than 30 A.D. So as you can see, those who are convinced that Hosea 6.2 and 2 Peter 3.8 are to be taken together have a problem with the prophetic years being counted from the crucifixion of Jesus. That period of time actually concluded by no later than 2002. As far as using the crucifixion of Jesus as the starting point, that part of the theory does make sense inasmuch as Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, does reference the crucifixion as a significant event in Israel's future. 
Of course, today is 2011 when I'm making this podcast, and so we've missed all the dates at this point. But wait, some say that the countdown should have started in 70 A.D. at the destruction of the temple. That theory is particularly problematic in that Israel's reality didn't significantly change in 70 A.D. They were, for all effective purposes, under Roman domination before and after 70 A.D., They had been under a foreign entity's rule since 586 B.C. True, there were a handful of years of Jewish rebellion between 586 B.C. and 70 A.D., but nothing that established Israel as its own self-governing nation. In my thinking, the beginning of the countdown for Hosea chapter 6-2 is not the biggest problem for the Hosea 6-2, 2 Peter 3-8 theorist. The exegesis of the verse itself is the biggest problem. Two Hebrew prepositions are to establish a time frame in that verse. The first is the Hebrew preposition men, which is correctly translated after. And the second is the Hebrew preposition be, which is translated on or in the King James Version in. Either way is is acceptable. So after two days and on or in the third day, both are accurate renderings of their respective Hebrew prepositions. Well, that being the case, if one considers the Hosea 6 2, 2 Peter 3 8 linkage proposition here as fact, then after 2,000 years and on or in the next 1,000 years is the correct way to understand Hosea 6 2. Well, my, my, that provides a 1,000 year latitude for fulfillment. Thus, for the theory cited above to be accurately rendered in or on the third day, well, that could be understood to be any time from 2002 A.D. until 2988 A.D. If one renders the crucifixion as the starting point, I mean, let's face it, a 986-year window takes all the fun out of that prophecy, well, for those of us who are living at the beginning of the so-rendered third day. All right, let's tie this discussion up. It doesn't seem likely to me that Peter intended for Second Peter 3.8 to be more than just a way of expressing the extent of God's long-suffering. Because in the following verse, he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, how does one explain what's taking God so long in verse 9? Well, verse 8 explains it. With God, it's not really very long at all. It would seem to be a significant exegetical stretch to make it say more than that. So what does Hosea 6-2 mean then? Well, that's a stumper. Well, let me tell you what I think Hosea may be expressing. Israel as a nation died in 586 B.C. There's little question about verse 3 there. It speaks of the restoration and messianic rule in the yet future millennium. The beginning of the return of the exiles in 535 B.C. to their land did not meet the criteria of Messianic rule, so it must be a reference to the millennium. Well, that being the case, Hosea compares the nation of Israel to one who is dead. While the body is intact, resurrection seems possible, as in the resurrection of the boy at the hand of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. However, when decay sets in on the third day, Resurrection begins to seem less plausible, as was the case of the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11 at the hand of Jesus. I mean, who can forget the words of Lazarus' sister Martha in John 11:39 when she says, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. 
I think that Hosea is probably saying that when it seems hopeless for Israel to resurrect, it'll happen. With the Messianic component of verse 3, I think these verses were not fulfilled at the Declaration of Israel's Independence in 1948, although that was a good healthy start. When Jesus is the Messiah, that will be the fulfillment. Now, in the year 2011, I'm looking with anticipation at the geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East, and I'm saying, seems like it might be almost time to me. As we come to chapter 6, verse 4, we're going to read down through the end of the chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 16, where we'll realize here that these folks in Israel just did not realize what they had, verse 4 of chapter 6. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men that transgress the covenant, there they dealt treacherously with me, Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood as bands of robbers lie in wait for a man. So the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you. When I return the captives of my people... When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. They are all adulterers like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me." Ephraim has mixed cake himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. Though I discipline and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, this kind of reminds me of the mom who says, I give and I give and I give, and what thanks do I get? Well, here's Israel starting out with the one true God as their protector, but they were completely ungrateful and they turned to those false gods.
These two chapters, starting with chapter 6, verse 4, down through the end of chapter 7, these two chapters condemn Israel for their lack of confidence in God and their unfaithfulness to Him. Incidentally, pay close attention to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Hosea is calling for sacrifice, but sacrifice that's based upon proper attitudes toward God. Those being Israel's shortcomings, of course. Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, when he said, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus again quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, when he says, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He uses Hosea's prophecy to rebuke the Pharisees in both passages. In these two chapters, we clearly see an indictment against both Israel and Judah for their idolatry. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.